Would you please turn in your Bibles now, as you can see from the uh, Scripture text on the back of your bulletin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul's second letter that we have preserved in the Bible to the church at Corinth. And as a preamble, before I read the text aloud to us, I want to read you a short excerpt from a book that came out when I was in seminary, uh, getting my first degree in the early 1970s. And the title of the book was The Last Thing We Talk About. And the author says this, we may postpone it, we may tame its violence, but death is still there waiting for us. Death always waits. The door of the hearse is never closed. Dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow with Nobel Prize winner and prostitute, mother, infant, teen, old man, the hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart as well as the hopeful recipient, for the funeral director as well as the corpse he manipulates. Death spares none. Now what would prompt a man to write such words? Well, I think part of what uh, prepared him to write those words was the fact that this man I think he had a total of five or six sons, but he had to bury three of them. One as an infant, one as a five-year-old, and one as a 19-year-old. And so the words he expresses there, and he, of course, writes this book to not end on that note. That's the beginning of the book. But it brings to mind the grim realities that have been wrestled with by mankind since time immemorial. And it's one of the, the looming questions for the human race. What, if anything, comes after the grave? Is my conscious self extinguished my brain, when my brain waves cease and my heart stops beating? From the most ancient histories up through our current day, there are many people who believe that when we breathe our last and when we die physically here, that we are annihilated. We are extinguished. It's over. Certainly people who would call themselves atheists, they reject the existence of God. They believe man is composed not of body and soul, but only body, or not of flesh and spirit, but only flesh. And then there have been religions, mainly coming out of India, such as Hinduism and Buddhism and Sikhism and some others, that teach reincarnation, that after the grave we actually live other lives through other human beings or other creatures here on the planet. It seems to me in more recent years that reincarnation has also gone by the label transmigration to describe that which we look forward to once we die. I read the obituaries in the Gainesville Sun uh, every week, 
Maybe this is something you do when you get to be my age, I don't know. It would be interesting. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many people here under 40 actually ever look at the obits. But as I'm reading them, and by the way, um, I feel like I need to give this disclaimer. I do not subscribe to or pay for the Gainesville Sun. I wouldn't do that. Um, uh, we have a, uh, an elderly neighbor who has gotten the paper for many years, Thursday through Sunday, and she always puts them on my doorstep uh, so I can read the sports page after she's done with it. Well, she just moved away, but she said she's going to let the uh, uh, subscription run out, so I'm still getting it Thursday through Sunday, at least through part of the football season here. But it, I, I digress. The, the obituaries um, <clears throat> have interesting ways of expressing people have died. And there's a term that, I don't know if it's that new, but I've noticed it more and more in the last several months where they say, uh, Sally Jones, I'm just taking a name out of the air, Sally Jones transitioned on such and such a date. And I thought, that's interesting that they use this word transitioned. And as you read some of the other obituaries, you find people who are people of faith, and it says things like they passed away, or they passed away and went to be with the Lord, or went to be with their Lord. Well, regardless of one's view of what happens after death, now I'm going to state a profound grasp of the obvious, regardless of one's view of what happens after death, one fact is undeniable. Every single one of us is going to physically die. With one caveat. If we happen to be alive in the generation when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, then we're in for an exciting time and a, a time of transition, if you will. Now, naturally, and I think understandably, most people want to delay it, that is death, as long as possible. Uh, modern medical advances are constantly coming up with ways to help us extend our lives. Do you know, living to be 100 used to be kind of a rare thing. I don't know if you have followed this. But in someone who lives to be 100 or more is referred to as a centenarian. Well, you know, there's people that are doing these studies around the globe. Have you heard about the Blue Zones? The Blue Zones are these areas of the world, and there's five of them where they've noticed that they have a lot more people living beyond 100 than normally happens on the rest of the planet. Uh, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on this, but one's in Italy, one's in Japan, one in Southern California, one in Greece, and one in Costa Rica. Those five Blue Zones have a lot of people who live beyond 100. But talk about extending life. Between 1980 and 2010, there was a 65% increase in Americans living beyond 100. In 2016, there were 82,000 Americans who were 100 years old or older. They're predicting that in the next 40 years, that number is going to rise to almost 600,000 people are going to live to be 100 or older. I think it's interesting because they always ask this question. What do you attribute your longevity to? You know, they get these 100-plus old people with a microphone, and they ask them, you know, what do you attribute it to? And they have all kinds of reasons that they offer. But one side note that was fascinating to me, one thing they have found was having faith 
is something that is mentioned by quite a few people. And the people doing these studies have concluded attending faith-based services four times per month can add four to 14 years to your life. So keep coming to church. <laughs> of course, some of these folks have a sense of humor. I tell you, I don't know if you heard this, but they asked some of these old folks some questions, and they asked one lady what she saw as an advantage to being so old. She simply said, I don't have much peer pressure. Okay. They asked another old guy, I think he was 107, uh, what his vision for the future was. He just said, brief. <laughs> you know? One lady, I think, had an axe to grind. She said she wanted no male pallbearers in her funeral. And her reason was, men didn't take me out when I was alive. I don't want them taking them out at the end. <laughs> But of course, but of course, every surgery, every prescription is merely an extension. A welcome extension to be sure for most, but it is only an extension. It just kicks the can down the road until we kick the bucket. <laughs> now that you're perhaps sufficiently deflated this morning, uh, Allow me to now remind us why we don't have to anticipate death with such foreboding. In fact, our text today gives us reason, that is, those of us who are Christians, to be confident, to be of good courage when facing our inevitable burial. And with that preamble, I read verses 1 to 9 to you. Paul writes, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, and as much as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Well, Paul goes back and forth between uh, two metaphors here. The first, uh, a tent, and then secondly, clothing. Uh, to get his point across. And when it comes to this whole matter of mortality and immortality, one of the first comments he makes here is that we need to remember that our mortal bodies were not made to last, at least not since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Our bodies, yours and mine, have what our automobiles have. You've heard the expression of built-in obsolescence. There's all kinds of things, products and things that we purchase that are not built and created to last. 
Imagine my surprise just a couple of years ago when I had a printer that was not very old, just two years, and something that appeared to me to be rather simple was malfunctioning. It just wouldn't feed the paper right, no matter how much I finagled it. And I searched this city and could find nobody that repairs printers. And finally, when I called the company, they just said, oh, it's just not worth our time. Uh, we know that if they break, you just, just buy a new one. And so there's this built-in obsolescence. They're not expecting it to necessarily last a long time, that we'll just replace it. Our bodies, Paul likens to a tent. Now, why do you, would he refer to it as a tent? Well, in Paul's day, once you traveled outside of a city and started going through the landscape, and especially to the south of Israel or along the desert area, you see many, many people dwelling in tents. Uh, the patriarchs dwelt in tents. And of course, for people who dwell in tents and don't have a permanent structure for their residence, basically they're living somewhat of a nomadic lifestyle and they're moving from place to place. They're putting the tent up, they're taking it down, and they're moving from place to place. And so he decides to use that picture, that word picture, to say that these physical bodies we have is a tent that we are only dwelling in temporarily. Now, for most of us in this room, probably, if we use a tent, it's just on a camp out, it's with the family, it's for a few nights, um, not something you'd want to dwell in, probably, uh, unendingly. I know I sure wouldn't. Camping out was never my big thing. We did it a few times as a family, but just to give the boys the experience. Um, I was glad when it was over each time, actually. Although I do have to say... Now, some of you are going to identify, and some of you are going to think, what a wuss. We were invited to go with a bunch of youth to camp at uh, Disney World. I think it's called, what's the name of that camp? Wilderness? Fort Wilderness. So I get there to unload the car and do the typical stuff, and I walk up, and the tent's there. The wood's all chopped, just sitting there on the, ready to be lit. They even called the restrooms comfort stations. I thought, this is camping. You know. <laughs> This I can handle for a few nights. But Paul's point is that this earthly tent, which is our house, if it's torn down, and it will be, once it's vacated, we have another residence, a building from God, and this isn't of human construction, as he says, a house not made with hands, and it's eternal in the heavens. Incidentally, I've seen uh, people living in tents. When I went to Israel many years ago, uh, there were thousands of Bedouins. And in fact, to this day, there are 200,000 Bedouins in Israel. Now, many of them have started building structures and actually establishing villages, but there's still a good number of them. You can see them dotted over the desert, these black tents that are pretty low to the ground. I think Syria has a million Bedouins. I don't know how many of them are still living in tents, but I'm sure it's a whole big bunch. But Paul uses that picture to get across a point, and that is that these bodies eventually are torn down, but we have another one waiting for us. And then he goes on to state what everyone realizes, is that this tent... These mortal bodies, these physical bodies, they are burdensome. They may not seem so burdensome when you're young, 
But as you grow older, they become more and more burdensome. Need I mention, there is affliction, disease, uh, our body decays, uh, we start to lose some of our senses, such as seeing, perhaps, it's not the same for everyone, uh, our hearing. The other day I was driving, I looked at my arm, and all of a sudden my skin looks like tissue paper. I don't remember that elasticity being there, but it happens. I've got my annual eye exam, and I can already tell I'm going to have to strengthen the prescription for this next year. Um, these bodies are, are, are burdensome. Perhaps you can identify with the man who bemoaned the fact that every time he went to the pharmacy, he looked down at what he put in the basket, and almost every item had the word relief in it. And then, too, there's the reality that while we're in these physical bodies, we have this flesh, there's a certain vulnerability to temptation and weaknesses and sin, which is going to be one of the best reasons to lay this one aside once we transition uh, to our next existence that is eternal. And then Paul also acknowledges uh, in verse 2 as well as verse 4 that, and he talks not just about the tent and the building, but he talks about being clothed and unclothed. He says that there is this longing within us now, it's easy to see that if we are undergoing some kind of physical discomfort and pain, that certainly those times can probably motivate us to think about wanting the eternal what's coming next because we're feeling so miserable now. I have been at the bedside of, of church members who were close friends, and I remember one woman 25, 30 years ago, um, they had put a hospital bed up in her living room. She had the morphine thing that she could punch and I remember one night she called me at 2 a.m. to come over because she was in so much pain. And I was sitting by her bed, and she had punched that morphine button, and it just wasn't doing the trick. And she looked at me, and she said, I just want to go home and be with the Lord. I just don't know why he doesn't take me. And I think if we're undergoing that kind of excruciating pain, and I know much of the time doctors can help us to not have that much pain as we reach our final days, um, I get it. Uh, when you're 20 and you're healthy and everything's going great and you feel like the world is your oyster and everything's in front of you, you probably aren't forced to think about heaven so much, even though you should be, because that scripture will address another time, talks a lot about the brevity of life and assuming that you've got your 70 or 80 years because it doesn't always turn out that way. Paul says something similar. Let me just read these verses to you. You will recognize them. Uh, from Romans uh, chapter 8. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption 
of our body. And there he's being a bit more detailed, and I think this is very much related to the statement that we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, where it says, God has set eternity in their hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 is reminding us that God has created us as human beings with an innate sense and a distinct desire to know what is beyond, what is after the grave, and that there is a longing for something beyond this life. And Paul says, God has prepared us for this very thing in verse 5. And much like he said to the Romans, we have the Holy Spirit within us testifying with our spirit that we're the children of God and that indeed we can trust him, which we'll get to that in verse 7 in a moment, to provide that which he has promised. When the Holy Spirit's called a pledge, it's the same word that's used of a man giving a woman an engagement ring. That engagement ring represents, I'm committing myself that I will follow through, commit myself to you, and we will be married. We will be husband and wife. And so it was seen as a, a pledge. That's what the Holy Spirit, part of its function in us now. It's a pledge that God is going to make good on his promises. And so because of that, because God has prepared us for this purpose, and he is going to give us a building and a, a resurrection body following this life, that he says in verse 6, therefore, therefore our mortality should not create dread in us, and it should not deprive us of confidence. Now, I say confidence. The New American Standard that I am reading from and the ESV both use the word courage, because the word in the Greek New Testament carries both ideas. It means to be confident and have confidence, but it's a confidence that sort of shows itself with being courageous and having courage. And so he says twice in verses 6 and 9 that we are to be of good courage even as we confront our mortality. Then he states the realities we need to keep in mind, and that is, as long as we are in this body, we are absent from the Lord. Now, let me correct a misunderstanding that you might draw from that comment. Obviously, Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And through his indwelling spirit, he is with us all the time. But even as we were just singing a few moments ago, we don't see Jesus face to face. So he's not just talking about something geographical or spatial. He's talking about something that is a relationship where we will be with him and we will actually see him. Paul also wrote to the Corinthian church, for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. And so, what do we do to maintain that perspective? Well, he tells us in verse 7, it's possible 
to be of good courage when we walk by faith and not by sight. Before I give you the simple definition of faith, I would remind you what Hebrews 11.1 1 says. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so faith entails our embracing and believing something, and more importantly, believing someone, that is the Lord, believing what He has said, that regardless of what circumstances look like in our temporal life now, there are certain realities we look to that we know will come to pass. The word for faith in the Greek New Testament as a noun is translated as trust or confidence. As a verb, it means that you're being reliable or dependable. Most of the time it's translated as belief. 98 times in the Gospel of John, in either a verb or a noun, the word faith or belief occurs. Which is why one professor wrote a commentary on John just called the Gospel of Belief because that certainly is the focus. And that passage that Nick Cathcart read at the beginning of our service, man, what a wonderful verse. In fact, I, I want to read it again, because it underscores what we're saying here. I'm speaking of 1 Peter 1.8. And so Peter is someone who lived with Jesus for three years, listened to his teaching, ate with him, traveled with him, and yet he knows the people he is writing to did not have the privilege that he had of a personal face-to-face -face relationship with Jesus in his humanity. And he writes, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So we love him even though we've not physically with our eyes seen him and we love him and that is stirred by hearts that are made regenerate by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Walking by faith and not by sight. I'll tell you there's an expression that I really really dislike. And it's this expression, just step out in blind faith. The reason I don't like that adjective blind faith in front of the word faith is because for some reason it just sounds like somebody is just closing their eyes and stepping out having no idea what they're doing. They're just believing as if there's not something that is the substance or the ground of their belief. We have to remember that our faith can only be as great as the object of our faith. And so it's not so much a blind step into the darkness as much as a bold step into the light when we walk by faith, believing God and His Word, and not evaluating our own lives, even what's going on in the world, and what we expect after the grave, except according to what the Scriptures clearly lay out for us. In fact, for the sake of time, I decided not to start this message a few verses earlier, but if you let your eye glance up at verse 17, 
and following, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And in verse 18, when he says we look at the things that are eternal and not temporal, there's a real common word for look in Koine Greek, but that is not the word he uses here in verse 18. He uses another word which means to fix one's gaze upon. It's not just a glance or a look. It's to fix one's gaze upon something or someone and to concentrate one's attention upon it. And the child of God, the Christian, is called to fix our gaze upon what Jesus has accomplished and what he has promised as recorded by the apostles and by what the gospels tell us. But then Paul goes on and I think gives a very helpful, helpful word of encouragement about how we live this balance between the eternal and the temporal. And in fact, I want to correct the wording on the outline there. Under Roman numeral 2, our mortality should not deprive us of confidence. A, we live by faith, not by sight. B, I have, we have the same desire. Insert the word should. I should have I should have put should there. We should have the same desire, whether in our mortality or immortality, and that same desire should be doing all that we can to please and honor Him. Then Paul says something else that I think for most of us, if we're honest, and I include myself in this camp, he uses a word which it makes me want to say, wait, wait, stop. Seriously? He says in verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer. What is it that he prefers? Rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Talk about a focus on eternity. Talk about always having an eye toward heaven. I wonder how many of us can say that with all sincerity. When I think of the prospect of eternity and of heaven, if I had my druthers, says Paul, I would rather be with the Lord than to continue here. I think it's I think it's very, very hard to reach that point in our lives when that is what we can truly testify to. I save most of the notes of all the sermons I've ever preached. Actually, my younger brother asked me the other day how many sermons I've preached in my life, and I said, you know, I never really thought about it, and I tried to compute, and I came up with probably 1,600 or something like that. And um, I pretty much have notes from all those sermons somewhere, if I go digging for them. And I was just curious about a time I had preached on this text in the past, what kind of things I had written down. And 
one set of notes I found was from 1998. So what's that? 20, 32 years? No. Was that 22 years ago? 23 years ago? And I had written down, I want to be in heaven eventually. I took these out of my notes. And at the time, Joel was 18 and Jonathan was 21. And I said, I want to be in heaven eventually, but I would like to see both my sons finish UF. Check. I'd like to have the joy of seeing both my sons married before I leave and go to heaven. Check, check. Um, it would be great to see grandchildren. Check, 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 check. That's four checks, right? David, Lucas, Sadie, and Oliver. Finished my dissertation for my doctoral degree, which would have been hanging over my head. <sighs> Finally, check. Uh, I'd been invited uh, over a period of a year to go teach at a Bible college in Serbia and was hoping to do that, and check, I was able to do that. Uh, for years, I had wanted to study under a Reformation scholar for a month in Wittenberg, and check, I got to do that. And so... When I read that, I thought, well, I feel blessed and fortunate that those were things I got to experience here before going to heaven. Then I wrote down 2021, and now? Well, we just had our 50th anniversary. Maybe the 60th would be fun. Um, I, I just had to pursue the other day how old we'd have to be to see Sadie graduate from high school and Oliver. And Man, if we get into them being married, if they wait much beyond age 25, that's eh, probably not going to happen. But you see what I'm getting at. It's, it's just there are things in this life that we love that are worth loving. They're not wrong. But do our affections for the things in this life actually start to crowd out what should be our main ambition and affection, and that is whether living or dead, absent from the Lord or with Him, that our ambition is to please Him. And that only comes about, I think, through years of immersing oneself in the Word and seeking the Lord and growing spiritually and hopefully, as Romans 12, uh, being transformed by the renewing of our minds because our minds need to be renewed to ever approach preferring heaven over this earthly sojourn. There and let me word this carefully. There is a difference between being willing to go to heaven but wanting to stay on earth and wanting to go to heaven while being willing to stay on earth. Paul actually elaborates on this when he's writing uh, to the Philippians when he says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake." Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. And um, 
I breathe a sigh of relief that Paul admits that, you know, there was a tension there, you know, for him. Yes, I really want that, but I can see that there's still things that I could accomplish here and certain things about this life that I would still like to experience. But I'll tell you, where the, where the, where the rubber hits the road on, on these principles is when we are confronted with all of a sudden the diagnosis which tells us we don't have the 70 to 80 years that we were counting on, that rather we may have weeks or months. And for the people that receive that kind of a diagnosis, everything changes in an instant. Everything about their outlook and perspective on life changes as uh, it should. So we don't have to have a sense of foreboding because twice, and notice this, I've, I've underlined them both in my text, twice he has stated what we know. Verse 1, we know that if this earthly tent is torn down that we have another. Verse 6, knowing that while we're at home in the body we're absent from the Lord. And then twice he says, be of good courage, in verses 6 and 9. There's a certain, shall we say, uh, convenience to people who embrace atheism and believe there's no God, there's no life after death. And of course, the convenience is that means there's no judgment, which he actually addresses in the very next verse, verse 10. But I knew that time would not allow me to deal with verse 10 today, so that'll be for another time. But just to look at verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. And just as the writer to the Hebrews says, it's appointed to man to die once, then comes judgment. Well, Epicurus, the Greek philosopher who established the philosophy of you know, eat, drink, and be merry, Epicureanism, He's recorded as saying, what men fear is not that death is annihilation, but that it is not. Famous Beatle, John Lennon, his iconic song, Imagine. You remember the lyrics? Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Well, you can imagine that, but it's not reality according to what the Word of God says. You've heard Brad and I both quote Charles Spurgeon from time to time, the Prince of Preachers uh, in England, uh, one of the most dynamic preachers that's actually ever lived. He had a, a wonderful sense of humor. In fact, one time he was criticized for using too much humor in the pulpit, and he just replied with a twinkle in his eye, if you only knew how much I held back you'd be relieved. But one time Spurgeon said this, addressing these kinds of issues. He said, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. Let it be irradiated with a heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. But when you speak of hell, well, then your ordinary face will do. <laughs> I want to bring this down to uh, what one writer calls street level. Uh, what I often say is the rubber hits the road into everyday living. I, I want to 
share with you two brief testimonies, one that goes back more than 100 years and one that just goes back about 20 years ago. Because these two testimonies, I think, reflect the mindset that Paul has presented here. The first one is from a man named D.E. Wilson. In 1912, he was a part of an exploration group of five British men that went to Antarctica to reach the South Pole. And I won't regale you with all of the details, but there was like a perfect storm of events that transpired that left them stranded so that all five of them died. One just said, I'm going for a walk, I'll be gone for some time, and just walked off into the blizzard and they never saw him again because he was very frail and frostbitten and knew he was near the end. But all of them left things in their diaries, uh, letters to their loved ones. And this one man who was 40 years old uh, wrote these words uh, for his wife uh, to be given once they were discovered, which they were. He said to his wife, don't be unhappy. We are playing a good part in a great scheme arranged by God himself and all is well. We will meet after death and death has no terrors. All is for the best to those that love God, and we have both loved him with all our lives. Life itself is a small thing to me now, but my love for you is forever and a part of our love for God. All the things I had hoped to do with you after this expedition are as nothing now, but there are greater things for us to do in the world to come. All is well. And then, that was in 1912, now we come up to uh, 1998, 1999. Uh, some of you may recall this. Uh, there was a young man, uh, he was born a hemophiliac, and in his youth uh, he received a blood transfusion that ended up leaving him with HIV as well as hepatitis C. And so he went through his elementary and middle school years and high school years uh, aware that life was probably going to be short for him. He was very candid um, in talking about the rage he had, punching walls and trying to come to grips with these things. His name was Steve Sawyer. And then he became a Christian. And I can't remember the particulars of uh, who led him to Christ, but he became a Christian and then had this unquenchable desire to travel and share Jesus with anybody that listened. And so uh, Campus Crusade crew had him speaking on several campuses around the country. And I can't remember if he came in person to Florida or not, but it doesn't matter. But part of his message that he gave in each and every place goes this way. He said, by all medical standards, I should be dead, says the 22-year-old standing on the stage. My T-cell count right now is 140. AIDS is diagnosed at 200 or less. And the viral load test, everything over 1,000 is high and bad. My viral load is 700,000. My liver is practically gone. It is almost all scar tissue. Doctors don't know why I'm alive. Life is like a dot on a line that runs for eternity in both directions, Steve explains. Whatever is happening on that dot seems huge, whether it is AIDS, cirrhosis, getting bad grades, or being lonely. 
But when you step back and recognize you don't have just that dot, you have the whole line, then everything in that dot aids whatever may seem horrible, but it's not. It's just a snap in a life of eternity. If I had to get these diseases that are killing me for that one person to understand that they can have a relationship with Christ, then it is worth it. In light of eternity, that is all that matters. See, it would be one thing for me to tell you that, and I would be sincere in saying it. It's another thing for you to hear that from someone who just within months uh, would leave this world. And we come back to the words, and if you are here today and you have not trusted Christ, these two verses uh, are important for you to hear. This is what gives us reason to be of good courage. John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then the big question, Jesus says, do you believe this? And then his youngest apostle, John, wrote these words, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Dr. J.I. Packer, who died not too long ago, one of the most preeminent theologians in the evangelical world, wrote this sentence, plan your life budgeting for 70 years and understand that if your time proves shorter, that will not be unfair deprivation, but rapid promotion. And when I read that by Packer, uh, Beverly, Karen, it made me think of Neil uh, Thompson. Because I remember when he told me after he got the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, which as you know is 98% of the time a terminal diagnosis, he said he had just gotten his invitation to heaven. Is that how you would respond if you were to get that diagnosis? You know, there's a, a saying that has been repeated many, many times by comedians and everybody else. I think it originates with Benjamin Franklin when he was writing to a French diplomat not long before he died. And Benjamin Franklin wrote this, Our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable, but in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. Now, we've heard that statement, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Well, for the Christian, that's not true. We rewrite that sentence, nothing is certain but death and heaven. And that's the promise that you and I have.